Welcome to the Green Edge podcast with Michael Cross and me, Fraser Harper. This is our update for the week ending 26th of January 2024. Many years ago, as a young graduate trainee on an engineering industry training scheme with a company that was then called Sperry Gyroscope, one of the pages of my notebook recorded all the spurious items poor little Gerald the Apprentice had been sent down to the stores for. They included a long weight, striped paint, and a left-handed screwdriver. Well, on review, that particular page didn't contribute in any way to my path towards professional status with the IMACE, but other pages did, and they included valuable lessons and observations from my time with design, development and test, materials resource planning, this was well before MRP2, ERP and SAP, remember, production and quality control. Oh, and stores, of course. Well, I certainly kept notebooks all through my various careers, and I know you have too, Michael. Why are we talking about them in this week's post? We're talking about them because if you go back through the history of thought and thinking and sharing and development of ideas, notebooks have had a central role. If you go way back six, seven hundred years to the beginning of paper, and if you go through the revolution of thinking in Italy, what Leonardo got up to, and if you come up slightly more to the modern day with Michael Faraday, Michael Faraday learned his trade by going to public lectures, taking detailed notes, and he was an apprentice bookbinder. He would then bind his notes, and then these got shown as an evidence of his progress and diligence. And he then went from the Royal Society and the Royal Institution lectures, and he invented electricity, as it were, and began his friendship with Ada Lovelace, which also appears in his notebooks. So I think it's critical as a way of capturing ideas, developing ideas. And if you think of Newton... Newton developed some of his best ideas, writing on other people's books around the margins, around the whole nature of gravity and some of his great calculations and thinking about light. So they are rather integral to our development of thought. I have to say that one of the frustrations I had once I moved into management was that the old notebook became less of a log of experience and more like just being page after page of to-do lists. But these days, you and I manage ourselves pretty well, Michael, so value is restored. Now, as a preview to an upcoming City and Guilds podcast that we're just about to release, we talk there about the process for many people in gaining qualifications for key roles around sectors like retrofitting, much of which seems to be around either short, sharp courses or perhaps even proving competence without the need for additional training. And this is where notebooks come in, don't they, Michael? They do. It's the form of your portfolio and record of achievements and record of jobs you've actually done and your improvements on those jobs and modifications and your review of those jobs as to what you could do better next time. So they're an integral part of that whole process. One point we make in the post is the fact that notebooks are becoming more digitized these days. And a big point we make is the potential for AI here. Tell us about that. It's strange because if you look at the great AI world and ed tech, you see quite a lot of activity around marking technologies and assessment technologies. There's a project called Grade and there's one called Progress A, but there's very little on the technical side where you'd have thought it is tailor-made to allow digital twin diagrams to be matched with the portfolio diagrams held in what people do. If you read the most recent note from the Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology, they almost make no reference to technical education and assessment using AI. 
And in fact, they major on AI as a way of cheating more than anything else and for ways to actually stop that from happening. That was, I thought was a little missed opportunity. They do focus on traditional academic education and where AI is having a progressive role there. So I think there's a golden opportunity here to use the technology that's available. And I would imagine we'll find it being used in some of the large recruitment and online training and education firms. And we do say that if a digital notebook is being kept, then using AI to check out competence and to give feedback is probably one way. And this is an area that the DFE could be looking into, isn't it? I think it is because we're going to have a large scale mass upskilling and reskilling program. A lot of it will be relatively informal. And if you want to maintain standards and quality and safety, you need some form of rapidly sifting and indicating where risk might take place risk to the individual and risk to other people. And the DFE could spearhead that type of activity. And I think wider, you get people like IFATE involved. But I think here there's also an opportunity for doing a partnership to actually develop a product that could be shared and used very widely outside the UK as well. And our usual reminder that you can find this week's post on greenedge.substack.com. And you can also find this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your usual podcasts. Now, Michael, a busy couple of weeks ahead for us before we take a short pause in February to do a bit of traveling and information gathering and a few things to publish. I already mentioned the City and Guilds podcast, and there's also a white paper, which we wrote together with Ingenuity, and we'll tell you more about that in a week or two's time. Then, of course, there's your monthly reports roundup, which will be coming out next week on 1st of February. A big crop again this month? There's always a big crop. It's actually keeping on top of it and getting them uploaded and read and summarised. But I'll pick out just one. There was a thing called the London Climate Resilience Review Interim Report came out. And this is an area of net zero and the whole climate change activity we tend not to focus on. That is where we're adapting ourselves to cope with the impacts of climate change. And this resilience report, just for London, goes through all the areas of cooling, wildfires, flooding and the like, and all the things we need to do, because there are lots of skill implications of both predicting and forecasting where these things might take place, but more importantly, how to ameliorate and possibly reduce them. And that report captures this. It's a consultation document, and I think the consultation runs for a couple of months. So it's quite an interesting piece of work. There is also an additional report came out from the Parliamentary Office for Science and Technology, one of their post notes, and this was covering green skills and education and training around it. We found this a very useful roundup. It is clearly of interest. We posted it on LinkedIn on a Sunday, I think, and we got 1,500 views of that and downloads within a 24-hour period. We know also Martin from IEMA did likewise, and he also had a good high hit rate as well. So there's clearly interest, and it's a good little briefing document for anyone who wants a quick general introduction. And I think there are over 150 references. So if you want the detail, click on the links in the detail. And we actually contributed to that post note, didn't we? We certainly did, along with many of the people we've spoken to. So we had Adam from Suez, Dave Ray from Edinburgh, Martin from IEMA, Andrew from Nesta. So it was a list of people we've got to know quite well over the last two or three years. To finish this episode, 
just after the new year, Michael and I had an interesting chat with the Church of England, didn't we? We did. We spoke to Joe Chamberlain, who's a National Environmental Officer, and intriguing that she has been charting the route to net zero. Now, the Church of England, you're thinking, gosh, they own 16,000 churches, and that includes 43 cathedrals. 12,500 of those churches are listed buildings. And they're all marching down this path. Needless to say, heat is their biggest issue. And what I think is intriguing is watching this highly devolved organization tackle this issue and actually win over the hearts of minds within their own organization before they start talking to their congregations about going to net zero. And I think it's also interesting that they have pristine grade one listed buildings putting solar panels on their roofs. I think there's a big message to all people who own heritage properties you can do this no matter what your age and nature of your building is. And they're making good progress. And she is overseeing that process. And I think they split that between the buildings and the estates itself, which is Catherine Ross's job. And her job, Joe's job, is around hearts and minds and winning those over across the whole of the workforce and the congregation of the Church of England. And outreach as well. Let's just hear from Joe telling us about her role. I'm the Church of England's National Environment Policy Officer and my role is working with the church as we seek to fulfil our mission to care for God's creation, to work towards net zero carbon, to take care of our land and nature, aware that there's a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis happening. I work to speak out into the public square and encourage people in churches to do the same. I work to support a network of diocesan environment officers who oversee this work on the ground in their diocese. We use the eco-church scheme created by Arosha to encourage churches to get involved in creation care and working towards net zero carbon. And we try to make sure that as we seek to follow Christ, that we seek to care for his creation and care for the people in his world that he has created. Now, Joe mentioned the eco-church scheme there, which is run by Arosha. And Arosha is a global group of Christian conservation organizations, and part of its work internationally is to engage churches in conservation. And it's interesting to look through the survey that each church or cathedral needs to do as part of the eco-church registration process, along with the obvious questions about the church buildings themselves, like energy use, whether its energy is renewable or not, the building's insulation, and all the way down to whether it uses recycled toilet paper, There are questions about use of the church land, like whether it's managed for the encouragement of native wildlife. But we think significantly we find questions there not only about the extent to which a church includes sustainability in its worship and teaching, but also the engagement it carries out with local communities. Like, for example, whether it participates in community cleanups and things like fair trade events. Michael, at a time of dwindling congregations, wider community engagement around sustainability has to be seen as an opportunity for the church. Oh, I think it does. I think it can be a double win for them in that sense, because they can, A, make inroads to their mission around net zero and their broader godlike mission around engagement of the community in actually doing better things for the whole of the environment. And I can't see why in many cases they couldn't combine their net zero path also with the community energy groups across England. And there are nearly 500 of those now who are looking out for community things to do. I think, though, people who are operating community halls independent of churches could learn a lot from looking at the Church of England resources. If you go on their website, the videos, the educational materials, their charting, their rating system, 
I think is applicable to anyone with a large public space of any shape or form, of which there are a lot of community buildings around the country, some of which are old churches that have now been taken on by the community. Okay, well, let's just finish with another sound clip from Joe Chamberlain about the Eco Church programme. The Eco Church scheme includes churches and cathedrals working towards bronze, silver and gold. And one of the beauties of this scheme is that it embeds creation care and working towards net zero into the heart of a church. It's it's DNA, who it is. But there's also this sense of trying to achieve an award and a little bit of peer pressure. Chelmsford and Salisbury Cathedral had a little bit of a competition to see who could get there first. And the lead bishop of the environment at the time was the Bishop of Salisbury. And I think he was slightly disappointed when Chelmsford pipped him to the post. Thank you for listening to this Green Edge podcast. This podcast series accompanies the Green Edge newsletter, to which you can subscribe at greenedge.substack.com. The Green Edge is produced by Blue Mirror Insights.